If you would, turn in your Bible tonight to the book of Acts chapter 17. Acts 17 tonight. And we'll start there in just a moment. If you need a lesson sheet tonight, they're there at the back at the Welcome Center. And tonight's lesson should say, Inviting to Trust and Bringing to Decision. And that's what it should say there at the top. So if you don't have one of those, you make sure you grab one tonight. It'll help you follow along. If you have your study guide that you've been kind of studying through mainly on your own, haven't been covering exact lesson to lesson in these time class times in the evening, but we've been working through this on your own and then giving some things that will help us apply it. So if you have both those things out and ready in just a moment, and if you would, look at Acts 17. Um, actually, you know what? Put your finger there and mark a put a bookmark there for a minute. And turn to Matthew 14. Do we'll do two things. There was something last week. This happens sometimes, and um, when I, I'm studying, and I kind of have a number of things rolling around in my head as I've been studying for Matthew. I typically try to read whatever book we're studying. I try to read that through at least once in a week, so that I have the whole kind of context that we're going to be uh, preaching from, not just those 10 verses or 12 verses, but the, where it's set in the book. And then I'll also try to read the section a couple times a week. So we've been in Matthew 9 and 10 with the miracles, and so I was reading that a couple times each week along with the book. And so there's a lot sometimes that is there, and I don't remember everything that, that uh, I was planning to say or that I thought the Lord laid on my heart. And last week we talked about John the Baptist, and we talked about uh, his doubt, or at least his questioning of Jesus, trying to get things sorted out and figured out. And uh, it kind of leaves us hanging, doesn't it? The story does. And I meant to cover this at the end of last week's sermon, and then I meant to introduce this week's sermon with it, just for fun fact, and I forgot that as well. So I'm going to take the liberty tonight to just point you at something uh, that I think is encouraging. So if you will look at John or Matthew 14... Uh, for time's sake, we won't read all of the beginning, but it talks about Herod and how John the Baptist, just how he ended up in prison. Um, and it's talking about his, his death. It says that he is beheaded. Uh, that's not the exciting part. Um, that's not what I'm going to show you tonight. I want you to look, if you would, at verse number... Um, I'll look at verse number 11. We'll pick up there. It's fairly graphic. as it's, or Verse 10, it says, He sent and beheaded John in the prison. His head was brought in a charger and given to the damsel, and she brought it to her mother. Very uh, violent, um, of course, and just debaucherous lifestyle that they were living. I want you to notice, look at something very closely in verse 12. And his disciples came and took up the body and buried it. Talking about John's followers. And they went... And told who? Jesus. Uh, somebody, we were talking about this week, we asked, did John ever get his doubts settled? You know, how do we know that from Scripture? It doesn't tell us explicitly, well, John had great faith the rest of the time he's in prison. But it's interesting to me that those disciples, or followers of John the Baptist that followed him so closely and that listened to him and that cared for him, where did they go when John died? They went to Jesus which I think shows that John kept his faith and trust in Jesus all the way to the end. That's just extra tonight. No charge. Look if you would. Acts chapter number 17. Acts 17. Now I don't have to try to remember that next Sunday morning as well. 
Acts 17. <clears throat> I want you to look, and we're going to open with a passage where Paul is preaching, and he's preaching to people at Athens. He's going to stand on Mars Hill, and um, he's speaking to a group of people that are very religious people, very spiritual people, if you would, meaning they pay attention to spiritual things. And he has gone and he has seen that at Mars Hill they have all these gods, this uh, kind of dedicated to anything and anyone that the people in Athens could worship. And so Paul gets there and he sees that they have all this, and he even sees that they have a a, a statue to an unknown god. And so they try to cover all their bases. Here's all the hundreds of gods that we worship, and we're going to make a statue or an idol for another god because we're sure we don't even know about all of them. And we're going to put that up here. And so I want you to notice what Paul does. He does exactly what we've been talking about in this study for the last few weeks. He takes something in culture and in their society, and he uses a conversation about it to direct them toward the gospel. And notice what he does in verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, You men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, quote, quote, to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Now, let me ask you this evening, do you really think that Paul looked at that idol and thought, oh, they're worshiping Jehovah through this idol and they just don't know about it? No, he, he's using this to relate to them. He's using a spiritual thing, a conversation that they were used to and knew of. He says, there is a God that you don't know about, but He's different than all of your other gods. You say, is He linking God as an idol? Is he, is this some sort of polytheistic thing where He is just trying to get Him to accept God with the rest? Notice, if you would, in verse 24. He doesn't do that. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that He is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temple temples made with hands. And just in that one verse, he says, God who made the earth and everything that is, meaning everything that you can imagine. There are no other gods. And if you want to imagine that these idols are gods, they're part of his creation as well. There's nothing apart from him. Verse 25, Neither is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. I want you to, we're going to kind of stop as we walk through. I want you to think about what he's telling them in, in comparison. First, he says, let's take this thing that you already relate to and let's talk about that and see how it points us to the real God. And he takes that and then he says, the real God is different. So he counters that. He says, your mindset is this, but truth from God's word says this. So, so he's not just accepting of anything and everything, but he uses it to direct them toward the truth. But then notice verse 25, he's, he kind of is setting aside or he's countering their typical thought about God. He says he doesn't need to be worshipped with hands. He doesn't have to have actions done to him to make him a God. He doesn't need anything. He gives everything life and breath to, to, to all things. So he says he is different than the gods that you worship. I think that that's important. As we give people the gospel, and we've talked about that these last several weeks as we've studied, as we are seeking to give others the gospel, 
We bring truth. We relate it to what we already have and know. We bring truth. We speak what the Bible tells about it. But then notice, he counters their the truth that they struggle with, or what they think is true that is not. Notice verse 26. He hath made of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. He says, this God is not just God of Israel. He's not the God of just Greece or Rome or this continent or this country. This is the God that is over all people, and you are responsible to Him. Verse 27, that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after Him and find Him, though He be not far from every one of us. So see how He starts to present hope. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your poets have said. Notice he relates again back to something that they could grasp from their culture. It says, for we are his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think of the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art to man's device. And the times of God's... But now watch what he does. He, he speaks, he gives the sermon about God himself. God is different than you have imagined Him to be. You are responsible to Him. God is looking at you personally and individually. But now that He's preached and presented God to them, what has this study been about? Right? We have looked at the fact that God is, uh, that God is holy, that God is just, that God is loving, and God is gracious. He kind of covers all of those. He is holy, unique, set apart, different from all things. He is just He gives life to all, and everything is responsible and accountable to Him. But it also says that He is loving. He says He's not far from every one of us. You can find the Lord if you seek after Him, and that God is gracious in that way. But now, notice verse 30 down through the end. He brings them to a moment of decision. He says at the times of this ignorance, God winked at it. Kind of is the idea of He blinked for a moment. It's... Uh, it's an allegorical type of blink. He's not actually winking or blinking at sin. He's saying he's, he's given you an instant. He, he hasn't destroyed you immediately because of your sin. He's given you a moment and an instant. But now, what does he do? He commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, Jesus, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard, now notice the response. He brings them to a point of decision. You know, had he just given this great speech and sermon and walked away, knowing the, the type of people that lived in Athens, they were very superstitious, they were very religious people, the audience that had gathered, they probably applaud, that was very motivating, and they walk away. But he brings them to, to a point of decision. And notice, and to a point of response. And notice what their response is. Verse 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them. Howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed. Among that which was Diophanes and a Paragite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. So notice what he does. He brings them to a point of decision. Some mock when they have to come to that conclusion. Some say, 
I need to hear this again. It's going to take me a while. And others believe. Let's ask the Lord to help us from His Word tonight. You have your lesson sheet there. We're going to walk through some things practically and then uh, do some application here at the end together. Lord, help us tonight. Uh, Like Paul, we may never get to stand and preach to um, foreign groups or societies, civilizations or cities. We may never stand to be able to speak and give the gospel in the presence of great authorities or rulers. But we have people that you have brought into our lives that need the same message that Paul is preaching and teaching here. And so we ask you that you will guide us and that you will burden us and that you will, um, if, that you will make the effect of the cross weigh heavy in our hearts and lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to notice there it says at the top of your lesson sheet, an invitation or inviting people to trust, bringing people to a decision. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to go back and rehash. This is one of those types of series. You can just go back and kind of repeat everything each week to try to build it all together. But hopefully you've been grasping as we walk through. We are looking for opportunities, people that God brings into our lives to share the gospel because He's given us that explicit responsibility and He's given it to all of us who believe. There are no Christians that are left out of His great mission that He has given to us. No one is exempt from it. He's called us to do it, and so we should. And so in calling us to do that, there's no one that He's called us not to go to in the world. But you and I, as individuals, can logically look at the world and realize that I think by the end of this year, they project that the earth's going to go over 8 billion people for the first time in its history. 8 billion people. Uh, I, I, have, I can't remember the, the numbers at all, but I came across one study that said if you were able to have a, a two-minute conversation with everyone on the face of the earth and give them the gospel in that two minutes, and I can't remember how many thousands of years that would actually take. We're, we're not going to get that opportunity, all of us, as a sobering thought that we don't have the opportunity to give the gospel to every individual ourselves one-on-one. But God has brought some people into your life that you affect differently than the rest of the world do. Think about this. There's 8 billion people in the world. You have a unique relationship with a handful of them, and they look at you as unique compared to the rest of the 8 billion people in the world as well. He's given us that responsibility, and He's given us that opportunity. And so we've talked about looking for those opportunities. We've talked about bringing conversations past just, I have a relationship with this person to, I have earned their trust to speak about spiritual things, to speak about my God, and we say that we should do it in a natural way. We should just be talking about it. We should be talking about our spiritual lives. It's odd when we just insert it in random places. You take your child to the doctor, uh, I was going to say to the paramedic, to the pediatrician, hopefully not the paramedic. You take him to the pediatrician, and the, the doctor doesn't really converse a whole lot with the child. They may a little bit here and there. And Have you ever noticed that there's this change all of a sudden, and kids eventually start to pick up on it? 
or, or mine at least have. Like when they're about to get a shot, when they're little, it's like they're flopping an elephant around, they're doing something to distract the kid, to gain their focus, and then bang, all of a sudden they hit them with it. And then eventually they start to figure that out. You know, like the fifth trip, they take the elephant out, the kid says, no, I'm out of here, and they take off running, right? Well, our lives, when we give the gospel, it shouldn't be like that. Like, haha, we distracted you, boom, I'm going to just drop this, this spiritual talk on you every now and then. It should be part of our lives. There are pointed moments in which we do say, hey, would you talk to me about this? Would you study this portion of God's Word with me? Would you go through this Bible study? But it should be something that's built into our lives. And we've talked about that. How do we turn the conversation toward those things? We talked about that last week. But then finally tonight, we're going to talk about how do we invite or how should we be inviting people to this decision to actually trust Christ? Is it just enough to talk about God? Is it just enough to go through the plan, as we call it, of salvation or God's plan of redemption, the gospel? Is it just enough to walk through it and as long as they've heard it? But no, we're called at some point to bring people to a decision, an opportunity to repent or not. We thought, think about this morning's sermon as, as Jesus is speaking in Matthew 11, and he just confronts these three cities and the people that live around them. I've been doing works in you for a long time. He, he says, I've been here, I've been doing mighty works, miracles, and I've been teaching. And to this point, you've paid attention to those, but, and you've kind of been interested in the spiritual side of it, but you have ignored my words and my teaching. And he says, you have an opportunity. You can repent or you won't. And then he warns them, if you don't, here's what's going to happen. And then you see the same in Paul's uh, presentation of God and of the gospel as well. So he preaches, he speaks, but then he comes to this pointed place of decision in verse number 30 in Acts chapter 17. He says, there's a moment uh, of this ignorance, like you didn't know about this God in a very clear way, and God has sort of blinked at your evil, your wickedness. He's given you a fraction of a second. James says life is like a vapor. It's, it's vanishing away. You don't know exactly when that last little puff is going to be. And he says you, you've had this moment, but now God is commanding you to repent. And interesting, I say it this way sometimes, that God commands people not to go to hell. Like, have you ever thought about that? Like he commands them to obey the gospel. He, God Almighty, creator of the universe, says, don't go to hell. <laughs> Come to heaven. He is a loving God. He commands them to repent, verse 31. Be, why? Because he has appointed a day. There is coming an end point to your physical life on this earth. You can live ignorant of your accountability for a while here, but there is coming a moment in eternity, or after your passing, or after death, in which you will stand before God one to one, and you will stand accountable before Him. And so when we think that it is awkward to bring people to that kind of point of decision and say, you know, you've heard about Jesus, would you trust Him? Have you repented? And it's, you say, well, I don't like to get into the personal things. How much more personal is it going to be for that person to one day stand before God Almighty, Creator of all that is holy, just, and undefiled, and face Him in wrath for all that they have done in this world. That's a personal moment. 
And so we think that we're sparing somehow ourselves and them from an uncomfortable situation when in reality we're just numbing ourselves and them to what is coming ahead. It says that He will judge the world not by their works, but by how they have responded to Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 32, and then their response, you see, some mocked, some said, we're going to wait and hear you again. And in the same way, and then some believed, and in the same way, people are going to respond this way. I want you to notice, if you would, it says, an invitation is not just something that is only done at the end of church, or at the end of a church gathering, but as we talk about God with our friends, our family, we share Jesus with them, there has to come a point where we eventually invite them to follow Christ. Think about Jesus preaching His messages to the multitudes many, many different times. He would call some to follow Him. But did you know that Jesus, when He said, follow me, usually He was actually speaking to an individual. He, he would say it during His sermons and as He was teaching and as He was calling groups. But we have so many instances where Jesus would turn to an individual and just say, follow me. But I want you to think about it. It was not when He, when he would call people to follow Him. He didn't always have to wait for the perfect candidate primed to say, it's just a sure thing they're going to say yes. And he didn't always wait for the perfect circumstance. He says, follow me while some guys are mending their nets. He says, follow me to Matthew while he's sitting doing his job for the Romans. He says, follow me right in public to a very uh, rich ruler. He says, sell all you have and, and come after me. Just follow me, give up everything. So I want you to think, Jesus brings people to this point, so so should we. As we give the gospel and we're doing His work, we bring people to a point where they have to realize, I have to choose to follow Jesus or not follow Jesus. Like, like when we go into, hopefully you don't go into Walmart, when you go into a store, just kidding, maybe you're in Walmart, I don't know how many, I'd be interested to know, I'm a numbers person, my brain is just weird, it works that way. I would like to know how many items there are in Walmart. Now, when you go into Walmart, how do you think about this? Do you think, I'm going to go in, say there's, I don't know, say there's 50,000 different items in Walmart, 50,000 different products in a Walmart, and you come out with 10. You you don't go in thinking, I'm going to reject 49,990 items. I'm not going to buy that. You don't do that. You go in and buy what you need or what you want or randomly see or your kid puts in the cart while you're not looking or whatever it may be, you go in, you're not consciously thinking, I'm rejecting these things. Because that's not how we think. But we are to bring people to that point in decision about Jesus. Because it is not, He's not just an option on the shelf. Well, as I'm here today, hopefully I'll take... No, you have an opportunity to accept Him or you will reject Him. So this is the importance of the point of decision. We need to emphasize that our decision about the gospel is not something that can be ignored. It's not an option. It's not an attitude. It's, are you going to be saved or are you not? We're in this inescapable, unavoidable problem. And we've been offered salvation from that problem. And so there's a conscious choice that has to be made to receive that salvation. I think your, your book, the booklet has it uh, somewhere. I can't remember the exact page. It kind of starts, I think, uh, page 51 in your booklet. He gives kind of the idea about uh, an illustration. He says there's a point of 
return at Niagara Falls on the Niagara River where you're heading downstream toward the falls and there comes a certain point where in a boat or if you're swimming where the, the pull of the current just becomes too fast, too hard, too strong. Once you're to that point, you're not getting out. You're going over unless someone throws you a rope and they pull you out and you are saved in that way. He says, imagine that you're floating down the river, you're past that point. You cannot save yourself Someone offers you salvation, you choose to accept it or you choose to reject it. And there's consequences for that. And he gives the idea, that is the way our lives are. We're not just swimming in a river, we just get out whenever we want. We are drowning in sin. And there is only one thing that can save us. So, it's important to bring people to that thought and think about it ourselves. He says, I want you to think about this. Why is, these are things that we should ask people as we've had the opportunity to get to spiritual discussions with him why has god brought you to this point in your life why are you here why has he allowed you to hear what he's allowed you to hear or put you in the place that he's allowed you to be luke chapter 13 is interesting jesus is speaking to a group of people there you can turn there if you want luke chapter 13 verses verse number one i think he gives us sort of an example of it Luke 13 and verse number 1, there's two things that happened in the culture and in, in public, two very public events. It says, There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifice. So Pilate sacrifices people. And he says, Jesus answering unto them, Suppose ye that the Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and slew them, thinking that they were sinners above men that dwelt in Jerusalem, I tell you nay, but except you repent, ye shall likewise perish. What does he do? He takes these two things, these two conversations, and he talks about this tower falling and 18 people tragically dying. He talks about uh, Pilate sacrificing these Jewish people. And Jesus just uses it to point, he says, hey, look, life's coming to an end for all of us, why are you still here? Rather than asking the question, why did this happen to all these other people? He brings them to a point, he says, you have to think in your own life, why are you still here? We talked about Niagara Falls in 1960, I believe it was. There was a man, now how would you like this, parents or grandparents? There's a man who offered to take his two, his co-workers, two children on the Niagara River in his boat above the falls so that they could have an opportunity to see it. I don't know about you. There is not a person in this world that I trust to take any of my kids on the Niagara River to see the falls. Not one of you. None of you. I love you all dearly. None of you are taking my kids. But evidently, this man was trusted. So he gets in a boat, and they're in the Niagara River. They get close enough. He's trying to let them see it. The motor on the boat goes out, and suddenly they're being pulled over the top of it. They jump out, they're trying to be saved, a 17-year-old girl, and she's rescued, and a 7-year-old boy and the man who took out the boat, they actually go over the falls. The 7-year-old boy miraculously lives. He goes over the side, they save him, he comes in, they save him, and he lives. The man dies, he perishes. It's interesting, it said that that little boy, he was 7 years old, he grew up experiencing just tons of guilt and shame and doubt. Of course, that's a traumatic experience 
And he lived in that moment just over and over and over again, over and over. Why did that? Why am I not the? Why did I get to live? But it's interesting. Somebody invited him to church one day, and he went to church. And we'll give you the long story short. He said he had to come to a point in his life where he didn't said, "I don't know why things happen the way they did, other than the fact that God has given me an opportunity to trust Him and be saved." And at 27 years old, he found Christ as his Savior. And we can help point people to Jesus in that way. I don't know what has happened in your life and why, but God, if He's left you here, is being long-suffering. He's giving you an opportunity to repent. We recognize that it takes humility to trust Jesus, to bring people. It takes a lot of humility to admit that sin is an offense before God, to recognize that we can't save ourselves, to trust in Jesus and His finished work on the cross for us. And It takes some humility. I want you to notice... It says there's a couple good questions that we can help bring people to a pointed place of decision. Say so we've had the opportunity to give the gospel. We've had several conversations with somebody about the Lord or about God or about what it means to believe in Him. And eventually it has to be personal. So here's a couple examples. Not the only questions you could ask, but a couple that are helpful. Do you believe that Jesus, God's Son, loves you and offers to save you and give you eternal life with Him? Do you, do you believe that that's what the Scripture teaches? Do you believe that that is an option? And do you believe that He will do that? And hopefully, if you've been able to walk through these things with someone prayerfully and God's Spirit working in them, hopefully they say, yes, yeah, I believe that, that He will do that. And then we make it more personal. You're saying, do you believe this? But we don't leave them at a place of simple belief. I want you to notice, look on your, if you have your book, you can look at page 47. And it kind of gives you this triangle. He says, do you understand and agree? Uh, that's parts of saving faith. Do you understand what God's Word is telling you about yourself and about God? Do you agree and believe that that is true? But those two things are not enough to be saved. The Bible tells us that even demons know and believe the truth of aspects of God's Word and God's plan. Even the demons know who He is and believe that He is God. It's not enough to say, I understand this and I agree with it. Then there's an actual personal step of, and I'm going to follow and trust this. And that's where we bring people to. Look at the second question. Are you willing to follow Jesus by faith, repent, and put your trust in Him, notice, alone? Not adding it to works. We said this earlier, but Jesus often brought people to decision, and He didn't always wait for perfect candidates and perfect conditions. This is difficult. You know, this is as much of a struggle or a difficulty for us, those moments, giving the gospel, sometimes as it is for the one being confronted with it. I think we should talk, think about that and identify it for a moment. Sometimes it's as much of an awkward or an uncomfortable or a heart-pounding moment, isn't it? To bring someone's soul to a, a pointed recognition of their need and then their, their ability to find salvation in the gospel and the choice, the accountability, responsibility they have. It's a, a crisis, if you would, of faith in the sense that you kind of start wondering and doubting, did I get this right? Is this really true and real? Is this the way? Notice, it says that there's two moments in that. When we decide initially, yes, I'm going to give the gospel. And then when we bring people to the point, will you believe the gospel? And those two moments in my opinion, are some of the most significant and some of the most difficult for us as believers to pass over and overcome, aren't they? Like that first word. How many of you have 
wanting to have a conversation with someone or uh, about whatever it may be. And it's just like you just couldn't quite get past the first word. How do I, I know what I want to talk about. Not, and I don't even mean just giving the gospel, just in general a conversation. I know what I want to talk about, but you're nervous about it. For It's somebody that you've had a, you like, when you remember those days, you like, you had a crush on whatever, and I just can't talk to them. I'm in love with them, and I've never said a word to them. You know, it's like, I just can't, I'm so nervous, I can't speak to them, or whatever it may be about. And sometimes we're amazed that once we finally get past that introduction, it begins to grow. And the same is true in our lives as we give the gospel. There's a moment where we doubt and say, I don't know that I can do this. And then it comes again when we say we're going to bring this to a pointed place of decision. This has to be personal. I think that it's important, notice on the back there, that we pray in two ways. That we pray for wisdom ahead of time. James 1.5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. So we pray constantly, God, continue to show me, give me opportunities. But we also pray for wisdom in the moment. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 says that Nehemiah is confronted with a decision he wasn't expecting that he suddenly has to make. And you know what it says he does? He says, and I prayed to the Lord and said. We pray even in the moment. I want you to think about these common hindrances. Sometimes when we bring people to a point of decision, it's not always this wonderful parade of acceptance. There's, that's a very, just frankly, a disappointing moment. When you think that you've explained the gospel in a way that at least you understand, and then you realize somebody you're speaking to, they just either don't get it, or maybe they get what you're saying, but it just, it's not, it's not seeding, it's not growing, it's not rooting in their heart and life for some reason. And it, there's just this sense of, oh, I just wish the Holy Spirit would work in this person. And sometimes there's some hindrances. You think about the parable of the sower and the seed and the things that creep into people's lives or that stop them from believing the gospel. And here's a, just a couple, or just a few examples. Sometimes there's not enough understanding. They may not fully understand something either about the gospel or have a question about its validity or its exclusiveness. I want you, if, you can, if you've got a pen, you can write it in there. I want you out beside that say that. Address these things. If you bring someone to a point of decision and they say, well, I just don't get it, don't stop there. Say, well, I'm willing to stay with you as long as it takes, whether in this moment or over the next days or months or years. I am willing to stay with you as long as it takes to help you get it and understand it. Sometimes there's emotion that gets in the way. I've been with people, and and particularly sometimes when I've been with kids and teens and camps and things throughout the year, people want say, I, I, I want to be saved, I want to trust but they're expecting or sensing that there's going to be this like dramatic, unseen push or pull, this overwhelming feeling that they're just going to, I just, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and do this. Sometimes it's not that way. Sometimes it is, I know this in my mind, I can sense in a way God moving my heart, I know, in my con- I know that I should do this. And there is no dramatic fanfare. But sometimes because people expect it, they say, well, because this isn't real. And in the same way that we cannot put it all on the mind, we also cannot put it all on the emotion. They say, this is what God is calling you as a, as an, as a whole being. And so when it comes to emotion, you can put out, you can write in there that emotion cannot change truth. 
how we feel. We don't base salvation on how we feel, but it is a choice that we make. Salvation is not an experience, but it is a decision. Sometimes there's future fears. I I jotted this in there because it's not one that I have familiar with personally until recently. I heard of people saying this, but never really experienced it too much until not too long ago. Somebody says that they're nervous about making a decision because they're worried about family and friends and loved ones that have died before them. Think about it. That's a difficult thing, isn't it? Somebody comes from such such a background where they know nobody, nobody in my family believes what you're telling me I have to believe. And if that is the case, that means that they are all lost. And that means if I decide this, I'm talking about eternity without them. And I had never really experienced that too much. And in, in, in the last oh, year and a half, I've kind of come across this two or three different times. That is difficult. And we have to be ready to be patient and work with those people. I think about, uh, it makes me think about uh, Luke 15 where Jesus is speaking. He's talking about Lazarus and the rich man. He says, in hell, the rich man lift up his eyes. What was his request? Not to get out of hell. But he said, send Lazarus that he would tell my brothers so they wouldn't come here too. And we can reference to that when somebody brings this up, but it's a difficult thing. Sometimes there's procrastination. We are human beings and so we like to sometimes wait and sometimes there's this natural feeling that i can handle this later and again we emphasize there's not always later sometimes there's just reluctance and you can put out beside this a a little in parentheses rebellion (laughs) because sometimes it's one or the other or sometimes it's both reluctance because i don't enjoy change some of us Love change. We would do something different every day if we could. Others of us would be fine if nothing ever changed anywhere, ever. And sometimes people just, this is, gonna, this is a huge moment in decision. It's a change. Think about how many times Jesus says, he calls to what? Repentance, repentance. Sometimes it's reluctance to change. Or sometimes it's just rebellion. I want to keep my sin. I just don't want to let it go. And I'm convinced that if I follow Christ, I w- I'll have to let go of these things. Don't shy away from that. And don't try to convince... Jesus never preached the gospel with this attitude. Well, what could it hurt? You know, you like sin, just believe, and then we'll figure out the rest later. He never did that. In fact, quite the opposite. People came to him and said, I want to believe and I want to trust. And Jesus says, well, if you can't let go of this, you can't follow me. If you can't set aside all other things, you can't follow me. So it's something that we can't skim over. When someone says, ah, I want to trust, but I have to let go of this... We can say, you're absolutely right. Jesus is calling you to let go of that thing. He is calling you to abandon that sin. But let me tell you, Jesus satisfies greater than anything else that you could ever imagine. And he promises to fill the void of anything that is left behind and to satisfy you in a greater way. And he promises to strengthen you to be able, by grace, to turn away from that sin, if you will trust him. But sometimes because we fear rejection, it causes us to back off or lose boldness. When we sense these hindrances, we back off and, and we don't follow. We should have patience in the same way that God has been long-suffering with us. When people come up with these hindrances, we can't walk away from them. Think about John chapter 3. Who comes to Jesus in the night? Nicodemus. You know what it says that Nicodemus did at the end of that conversation? Jesus speaks with him. He tells him. He preaches. 
God so loved the world. I didn't come to condemn the world. The world's already condemned. This is totally different than anything you've ever thought or believed, Nicodemus. You know what Nicodemus did right then? The Bible doesn't say. <laughs> we have no idea. In fact, it kind of insinuates a little bit that, that he walked away from that moment. Maybe not trusting then. But who helps prepare and bury the body of Jesus after he dies? <laughs> Nicodemus does. Somewhere along the way, Jesus' patience and long-suffering with him overwhelmed his life and grace seeped in and changed him. Think about the parable of the sower. It talks about some seed that went in praying, sprung up quickly. But it talks about the good seed. You know how it says the good seed? It says it took hold. It took time. And sometimes God's Word takes time in people's lives. We should be patient with those that we work with, with those that we are uh, that are family to us, with those that we are witnessing to. Let me encourage you, with our kids and with our, grand, with our grandkids. I don't have grandkids yet, but I have kids. And you know, I look at Lex is going to be four n- next week. Uh, he'll be on four on the ninth. And I look at him and I'm like, man, he's starting to understand some of these Bible lessons. He doesn't, I don't think he has any real scope or grasp truly of the gospel or a sense of his need at that point. Or I don't, I don't feel like he has it, but, it, but I know that he's, he's getting closer to sensing some of those things. And there is this helplessness that I feel watching his life and just saying, God, please, 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 please. But there is patience that has to happen in their lives. And it's something that can only come and empower us through God's Spirit. Notice the last. It says a summary of understanding. I want you to think of this. When we bring somebody to a decision, what does somebody need to know? That is one of the biggest questions, I think, that we often ask in giving the gospel. What does somebody need to know to be saved? Do they have to get it all right? Think about people that Jesus called to follow Him. Right? He calls Matthew from a tax collector's table where he's serving the Roman Empire, has abandoned the Jewish, not just their culture and society, but also probably even their faith. He calls Simon and these roughneck guys that are out fishing. He, he calls Simon the zealot, who is willing to go to war for some of his cause. He calls all these people. He does not wait for them to get it all straight. We wouldn't have the Gospels if we did. Think about that. <laughs> Half, I, I can't say that, I don't know for sure, but I would say at least half of the Gospels is Jesus taking the people that He has already called and that have already said yes to Him and teaching them the things that they don't know. I mean, most of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's what we're being given. So it is not that somebody has to know anything and everything possible, then they get it all in their neat box and then they believe. Jesus calls these guys way before that. I think there's times that we wait and wait and wait to help bring someone to Christ, when in reality, like Jesus, we should be calling them to follow now. But what's needed? Here's just a basic summary. A person that comes to Christ by faith, what must they do or have? They must understand that they have sinned against God and they deserve hell. What is that? It's God's holiness. All sin is against God. And it's the fact that He is just. And I deserve to be punished for it. Because not only can he not dwell with sin, he also cannot let it go. He rules over all things. And so someone has to understand that they have sinned against God, they deserve hell. Someone has to believe that God loves them and he died in his place. They have to need to repent, or they have a need to repent, seeking God's forgiveness 
and the exchange of record with Christ. And then they place faith and trust in Christ alone. That's, that's the basics of the gospel. Notice it doesn't say exact perfected thoughts on the accounts of creation. It doesn't say they need to be able to weigh the options of this theological structure. It doesn't say they need to believe that this happened at this miracle or this happened in this thing or here's what this passage means. They must know these things and then be called by God's Spirit. I want us to take a few minutes and uh, we're going to pray. Before I forget, at the end tonight, um, there is a little sheet up here. It says, Find Five. I want you all to get one of those or we can even have help pass them out. Not now, but in, in a little bit. And it, it, it's having us write down five names and then there's some instruction on the back of it. There's three cards. That way you can put one in your house, in your room, or in your car, wherever. More than one of them. Write down those names so that you can be praying for who it is that God wants to bring in your life. And then there's a memory verse sheet, suggested memory verses for us uh, to be able to follow along with some of this as we've studied it. But here's what I want us to do. I want us to take the last uh, five, ten minutes or so and get in groups of, I don't know, four to six people, sit with someone you haven't sat with today, talk to somebody you haven't talked to today. And uh, we can sit together as couples, that kind of thing. But I want us to get in groups. And you're not, you're not having to do anything crazy or formal. But I've given you, I just took some headlines. I just went on, I can't remember what site, a couple different ones, NPR, or some just news headline sites, period, that just said, here's, here's what is happening this week. And just took the last five or six of them and just wrote them down. Remember last week we talked about how do we direct our conversations to spiritual things. Here's all I want you to do. Just sit together, four, five, six of you together. Read one of those headlines and then just how, how, do, we, how do we take this, how do we talk about this and end up speaking about God in it? And I think it will be a good challenge for us and a good exercise for us as we get ready to finish, uh, finish up um, this study next week. Uh, well, let's ask the Lord to help us, and then we'll, we'll do those things together. Father, help us now in the time we have left of our conversations to be edifying toward you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, take that sheet if you would. Let's take the next, you know, I'll probably come back in about eight or nine minutes and um, discuss those things. How can we turn people toward the gospel, but specifically toward spiritual conversations? So it's kind of a practice from last week. Let's do that together and then we'll be dismissed in a few minutes.